And they paid me to write the script. And then I just spent months waiting for them to, like, give us a green light. And then, I think it was, like, October 2015, their budgets got changed around. They were like, we can't spend $10,000 on that video. So they, they, like, gave me back the rights to it. And then that was the end. And then also my freelance work had, like, kind of cooled off. My regular client had, like, had put a freeze on, like, their video operations. I was, like, totally broke, just out of money, and I got shingles. It was just brought on by the stress of, like, so many times, like, waking up in the morning and looking at my phone and seeing that I have an overdraft fee because I have negative money in my bank account. I am broke, and I have shingles, and I'm back at square one pretty much. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. You just heard YouTuber Patrick Willems recall one of the most disappointing moments of his life. Imagine for a moment that after years of making action-packed movies, refining your craft, and garnering momentum as a filmmaker, you graduate college only to find yourself trapped in a retail job. Sounds like a nightmare. Well, for a while, this was Patrick's reality. Before he built a channel of over 350,000 subscribers, and before his videos started gathering hundreds of thousands of views, Patrick was like any other 20-something, broke and unsure of how to transition from the role of a student to that of an adult. Despite feeling behind in his professional life, struggling to expand his YouTube community, and getting ghosted by the corporate suits, Patrick kept his camera rolling. This tenacity and resolve to overcome obstacles began with a lifelong love of superheroes. My full name is Patrick Henry Willems. That is what the H in Patrick H. Willems stands for. And I am a filmmaker living in New York who has uh, kind of fallen into a career making internet videos where I talk about movies. I think that is the simplest way to put it. So in the early 90s, Ninja Turtles were like a, a very big thing. It, you know, if you follow the genesis of that franchise from kind of like a breakout independent comic book, I think then it became a movie that was like, I think at the time, the most successful independent film of all time became this, you know, massive Saturday morning cartoon. And me, at the age of, like, four, like most other four-year-old boys, I was like, I want to watch that show, because it's the cool show that everyone else is watching, and, and they're ninjas, and they have weapons, and, and they're color-coded. And uh, my parents, who did not pay a lot of attention to popular culture, like, we, let me put it this way, we did not have cable TV until I was 11 years old. We lived out in the woods, basically. <laughs> they said, this looks annoying, and we don't want to deal with this being on all the time. So, what they told four-year-old me was that it was too violent and I wasn't <laughs> allowed to watch it. And then I learned years later that they were lying to me. They weren't <laughs> actually concerned about it being too violent. And so instead, they were like, 
let's show him the old, uh, like, 1966 Batman movie, because we watched that when we were a kid, and, you know, that was funny, and, uh, you know, he'll probably enjoy that. And so they, they rented me the 1966 Batman movie starring Adam West and Burt Ward. And part of the reason that it was so immensely popular in the 60s is that it works completely differently depending on uh, how old you are when you're watching it. So if you're a, a kid watching it, it is deadly serious. It is life or death stakes. It is like nonstop action, super intense, like the best thing in the world. And if you watch it when you're like an adult, you realize how hysterically funny it is. But again, if you're a kid, just feels like totally legit and not a joke at all. So my parents put this on, and me, age four, I'm like, I'm entranced. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I would just rent it over and over and over again. The funny thing to me is that what they had done, the huge mistake they had made, was they had gotten their four-year-old son obsessed with Batman. And it was 1992, the year that Batman Returns, a giant blockbuster Batman movie, was released in theaters, which had so much tie-in merchandise and just endless toys. Decide. Batman Returns, exploding with power. Like, just all of pop culture and media was just suddenly exactly tuned into this thing I was obsessed with. I'm sure, you know, my, my parents had, like, a Michael Bluth on Arrested Development moment and just going, I've made a huge mistake. But by trying to avoid one silly obsession, they had created a much bigger one. Patrick was not alone in his obsession with Batman. Since his debut in 1939, the legendary characters captivated generation after generation. In fact, by the 1990s, the DC Universe had spawned four Batman movies and five separate shows. Not to mention the comics were selling hundreds of thousands each year. The Batman mania soon left an enduring impression on Patrick's imagination and identity. He didn't just want to be a passive viewer. He wanted to create his own content and impact others with his stories as much as Batman had impacted him. Motivated by this newfound sense of purpose, Patrick picked up his pencil and began to draw. Basically, right away, as soon as this, like, initial obsession with Batman specifically then turned into, like, I've got to consume all the media that this character appears in. And then I started reading a lot of, like, comic books and getting really into comics. I was also really into movies. It was sort of like movies and comics were like a two-pronged thing. I didn't have a video camera. I couldn't make movies, but I did have paper and crayons, pencils, markers, and so I could draw all the time. I, I was definitely not any kind of like natural artistic prodigy. It was mostly I just studied comics a lot and then just replicated what I saw. But I, I kind of became like the kid in my class who could draw well. It was mostly I could draw Batman well. <laughs> you know, as I got a little bit older, as I, as I you know, was get into like age 10 or so, I was like, I, I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to be a comic book artist. And let, like in third grade, I got some friends together and we sort of like, we started a little uh, like comic book publishing company. We were creating our own, our own little like fictional universe of interconnected characters. But yeah, I was so set on being a comic book artist. And, and then as I was getting into middle school, I was still interested in this, but filmmaking was beginning to seem a bit more attainable, and I was also getting a lot more interested in tracking the behind-the-scenes development of, of movies that were being made, and, and like Hollywood and stuff like that. 
And why was filmmaking more attainable now? I think a big part of it was that it's not so much that I, I suddenly like had a lot of equipment and could make my own movies, but I started realizing that as I was like, you know, planning out like uh, comics I wanted to make and that sort of thing, I realized that I was becoming more interested in like fantasizing about the eventual movie adaptations of these comics than actually making the comics. And then also with the actual like process of like creating the comics and, and like the illustration and artwork went, I realized that I was a little bit too lazy to like really put in the work to improve at things like perspective and anatomy and light and shadow and stuff like that. As much as I like have enjoyed doing this as a kid, this is not really the true passion. I don't really have the drive to put in the extra work to actually become great at drawing. Then it was around middle school where I started realizing that I was like, I think I actually just want to make movies. The idea of planning out shots and crafting like a, a sequence and editing and stuff like that just became much more exciting to me. And at that point, I still didn't have like a good video camera, but my mom, who was a teacher, uh, had this like big old camcorder that would like that you put an entire VHS tape into that she had provided by her job that she was able to bring home. And so I finally had my hands on a camera and could start experimenting and, and shooting stuff at home and making making little short films. Patrick discovered that art was not exactly for him, but movie making was. One of the great things about being a child is the freedom to explore without consequence. Adults have a habit of slapping a price tag on their skill set. Someone's flair for spatial reasoning, passion for storytelling, or knack for problem solving is only as valuable as the amount of money they're able to earn from those skills. But this type of measurement overlooks the importance of that like, internal fulfillment that we get from self-improvement, from diving deep on a subject and becoming a leader in our field. On the other hand, kids don't actually choose their interests based on what they think will get them the highest salary. They choose based on their curiosity and what excites them. When Patrick was confronted with that question, what do I really enjoy doing? The answer was simple. Though drawing served its purpose as a creative outlet, his talents and interests were better suited for film. Guided by his passions, Patrick exchanges artist pencil for the director's chair. The first proper movies that I really made were actually, I had this thing that maybe some of your listeners remember this. If they were a kid or a teenager in like the year 2001, 2002, Lego made this this thing called the Lego Steven Spielberg Movie Maker Kit or set. And basically it was this, this set that came with uh, a little camera, a really small little camera that had like a Lego exterior, so you could actually like like attach it to other Lego stuff, and then uh, software. So basically, it was designed to make stop motion animated movies with Lego. And so the first movie I made there, where I had a lot of Star Wars Legos, um, I made one called Star Wars Episode 4.5: The Emperor Bikes Back. After that, I made a uh, Spider-Man one because in 2002 they released a lot of Spider-Man Legos, and uh, and that was a thing. I, I I could like construct these like I spend hours on a single shot. I'm just like I'm gonna do a shot where the camera like tracks up as Spider-Man crawls up a building, and I'm gonna build this whole cityscape, and then he's gonna shoot a web and then swing, and the shot is gonna last 10 seconds, and it will take four hours to do. <laughs>
Because a lot of filmmaking can be, it rarely goes exactly like you want it to. But something about the process of this, I found kind of exhilarating because you could basically like, you're constructing like a new reality, essentially. The act of trying to chase that goal of like, imagining something and being like, I'm going to try as hard as I can to take that thing that's in my head and make it a reality. And then so I can show it to other people. And I just found that really exciting. Initially, being able to create anything, it's like incredible because you've never done that before. Doing something over and over. Iteration. It occurs within the individual, but it also occurs within whole genres. Lego released their Steven Spielberg movie maker set in 2000. But the origin of this product comes from a tradition of making Lego home movies. In 1973, two Danish children invented the Lego film genre when they created a stop-motion short titled Journey to the Moon. Within a few years, a stream of similar home movies emerged. Between 1985 to 1989, a teenager named Lindsay Flay shot a 16-minute film about an astronaut and his friends embarking on an adventure after entering a magic portal. Even Lego jumped on board when they released a video series featuring friendly animal characters. The popularity of these brick films eventually culminated in the creation of the Movie Maker set. Because of Trailblazers before him, Patrick had the inspiration and technology to take a stab at his own Lego films. The pride of translating an idea in his mind into reality made it worth it, while the thrill of inviting others into the story energized him. While Patrick wasn't ready to shoot a blockbuster just yet, he was ready to move his director's chair out of the house and into the community. The obvious next step was to make a live-action movie with people in it. My big fear was that I would become a person who would spend years talking about how they were going to make movies and then never actually did it. Well, what thankfully happened was it was the summer between my sophomore and junior years of high school. And uh, I, while like falling asleep one night, I had an idea for a short film. It was a kind of mockumentary about me trying to become a lumberjack. And it was called Patrick Willem's Aspiring Lumberjack. So then a couple weeks later, I asked one of my friends to come over to like be the camera operator. We shot the whole movie in a couple days and, and we made the movie, we edited it, and, and we had this thing. So I, I did this right at the end of summer vacation and I finished this movie. And then when school resumed, I burned a bunch of DVDs of it and I went back to school and I just loaned DVDs out to everybody. And then, uh, and so El- everyone saw it, and then immediately people were just like, so are you going to make another one? And then I came up with an idea for a sequel. And in that, we just massively increased the scope. Every scene had, like, a crowd of 20 people in it, because everyone just suddenly wanted to be involved. And then uh, my dad had the idea that uh, we should start, like, a filmmaking club at school. And a lot of people joined, because everyone wanted to make movies. We managed to have a film festival at the end of each year, and basically, over those couple years of high school, I kind of just became the guy in school who makes movies. I was the filmmaking guy. A A very key point here is that, you know, when I'm like 17 years old, uh, I haven't been to film school. I don't know what's realistic or what's possible, and so I keep deciding to do these, like, absurdly ambitious projects which was a hundred minutes long. 
and has like a car chase in it. There's all this this stuff that that now I would never attempt with like with no budget and stuff like that. But the really key thing is that as much as I, I studied film for four years in college, I learned so much more making these movies than I actually did in college. When it came to experimenting with his craft, Patrick was fearless. He dressed up as a lumberjack, arranged car chases, and even organized a dance number. Compare these wild antics to the sterile and controlled environment of a lecture hall. Simply being able to name camera angles is not the same as actually tilting your camera yourself and seeing its effect on the tone of the scene. Neither is imagining yourself directing a movie the same as actually directing one. As epic and exhilarating as Patrick's heyday as a filmmaker were, they were also chock full of complications. But it was precisely because of these complications that he was able to accelerate his craft as a filmmaker. Experiential learning not only gave Patrick a chance to apply his knowledge, but it also taught him how to lead a team, communicate his ideas, and problem solve on the fly. He wasn't just learning technical skills. He was gaining people skills as well. Up to now, Patrick's audience consisted of his hometown. But with college just around the corner, that was about to change. So YouTube became a thing my senior year of high school. In those early days of YouTube, we're kind of like beginning careers in in this new medium, in this new arena where like anyone could make stuff and and reach an audience around the world. And I wasn't thinking about this at all. I mean, I put a couple of like my old like high school movies like on YouTube, but I wasn't looking at YouTube as any kind of like real genuine platform. I was making these movies that were basically, there's no way I could submit them to a film festival. They were full of licensed music that would never be cleared at all. And I was basically just making them for the audience in my hometown. We did premieres and I would sell DVDs with special features we made uh, to like, you know, to family and friends and stuff like that. And that's as big as I was thinking. I definitely made some stupid choices back then. Uh, during college, I wasn't really thinking in like a career-minded way at all. At no point did I get any internships uh, like during like summers off from college. I would just come home and then get my friends together and make movies. Because I was very comfortable in this world, I knew everybody and I was the guy, you know, in town who, who makes movies. And I had all these people who were like, like all, all these friends who were always ready to, to, to come and, and, and work with me. That was very comforting and safe, and I and I understood it. While thinking about like career stuff and networking and making connections and like worrying about jobs and money and and how what I was going to do like after college, uh, that was scary and confusing and less certain. I had a good time in college, made a bunch of friends, enjoyed myself. I didn't enjoy making movies there as much. I think it was this weird period of like, you know, trying to figure out, okay, now how do I make slightly more more mature work than like the wacky action comedies that I made for years? But yeah, I, eventually I think I was like confronted by this when my senior year of college kind of rolled around. And we had, in, in my department, we had our big senior projects that we would make. And I was going to make a, a short film. And um, I think this might be a pretty common thing, but I went into this with, like, 
great confidence because I, I feel like anyone who starts making movies as a, a teenager, we all go into it hoping that we'll be like the wonderkind who will pull like a PTA and make boogie nights when we're 27 and, and that kind of thing. And that is almost nobody. And so I still had this idea. I was like, oh, right, I'll make my senior project film and that'll be amazing. And then it'll like go to festival and like launch this career. Anyway, long story short, it didn't. Why not? I think I was holding myself to a higher standard. I was trying something more ambitious narratively. And, uh, and I think I just tried too much stuff visually that I didn't quite have the technical skill to pull off. Because the big thing that I learned from making those, like, no-budget feature films was I got really good at problem-solving and, like, the practical aspect of it. That did not mean that I was suddenly just, like, I'd become an incredible screenwriter. The actual, like, artistic parts, it definitely still had a way to go, but uh, I definitely, I was able to get, like, a fairly complicated movie finished. That didn't match your taste. It didn't match my taste, and um, I think I submitted it to, like, a couple small festivals uh, that it didn't get into, but I could even kind of tell, I was like, this is not going to launch a career. Was that disappointing to realize? Um, it was, yeah. The thing that was rapidly approaching was graduating from college. I put no effort into internships or any career connections at all. And so what I did was I just I applied to grad school. It's a way to prolong dealing with like the real world. But it was like I was applying for the wrong reasons. And I was also arrogant about it. And I was like, well, I'll only apply to three best film programs in the country. And because uh, I'm just like, if, if you're not going to do like one of the very best, you know, for grad school, what's the point? I got flat out rejected from USC and NYU. And I got waitlisted at Columbia and uh, did get uh, ultimately rejected. And so then I graduated from college. I got rejected from grad school. My like senior thesis film was not going to get me anywhere. And I had zero career connections. And so the first thing I did was I went back home and immediately, like I had the previous summers, threw myself into an incredibly ambitious filmmaking project. Four years of college, and suddenly Patrick was back at square one. It was terrifying, not because he didn't have a plan, but because his plan failed. When this happens, it's easy to feel as if we failed as a person. But I want to take a moment to break down this type of thinking. Naturally, our actions and our outcomes are closely tied to our identity. And like we discussed earlier, imagining yourself directing a movie doesn't make you a director. Picking up a camera and filming does. However, the quality of that film, whether it's a cinematic hit or the worst film you've ever made, doesn't determine your self-worth, nor is it a measure of your true potential. Take filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson, for example. In his early 20s, Anderson was a college dropout working low-level PA jobs. This probably isn't what you would expect from someone who would go on to direct critically acclaimed movies like Magnolia or Boogie Nights. But that's the point. A career in film, or really most jobs, is rarely linear. It's full of twists, turns, and cliffhangers that leave you on the edge of your seat wondering what's going to happen next. Anderson already got his big break. Patrick, however, was working on his. 
So what I did, I, when I was back in my hometown, I was working a retail job, and this is in, in this is 2010, still like the same year that I have graduated from college. Don't really have any prospects. I have no big plan, and I decided, I don't know, I'll apply to grad school again. Maybe it'll work out this time. Last year I got waitlisted at Columbia, and then this year I just got flat out rejected. And so this was like. This felt like such a low point because a year earlier I got waitlisted coming out of college. This year, I was I had graduated from college. I was working a retail job and I couldn't even get waitlisted. I was I I, I regressed. So I'm feeling like a failure. And so and then after a depressing weekend, I realized I gotta do something. And and I will say, never underestimate spite as as a, as a motivating force. Because right away I was, I was just like, once I got out of this like funk, I was like, okay, uh, these Columbia admissions people, uh, fuck those guys. Uh, I need to make them feel terrible about their huge mistake. And so I just, I need to not crush them, but I need to make them feel stupid <laughs> for this decision. So I've got to do something. I'm not gonna, you know, get a career by, like, sitting in my bedroom and feeling sad about myself. And so then, clearly, like, I felt here like there were two main, two, two potential paths forward. There was move to L.A. and be, like, a PA on sets. Get get in the industry, start at the, the, you know, ground floor, try to make connections and work your way up. And, like, hope that maybe someone will, like, read a script I wrote. And then the other way would be the totally independent route, which is just make stuff on my own right now with whatever resources I have and put it on the internet and hope that maybe people see it. And so I decided that instead I would do the independent route. I, you know, the, the idea of like, you know, potentially spending like a decade as a PA on sets, never actually like being able to like create the things you want sounds like a nightmare exactly and like that's clearly like a totally viable route for so many people i just realized it was not for me and so that was when i was like okay i'm gonna buy a dslr so i have like a better camera i'm gonna get friends together and i'm gonna launch this youtube channel and that was then the beginning of the channel patrick had hit a wall he'd been trying the same tricks over and over again living his life by a set of predetermined paths if he didn't get scouted in college, he would make an award-winning thesis film. If his senior film didn't work out, then he'd go to a top film institute. But with both of those alternatives out the window, Patrick was finally free to forge an independent route that suited him. No longer did he have to trim himself to the expectations of an institution. It was time to throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Unleash his creativity without restraint. Experiment and try new things. One of those things would be YouTube. And so you have this Facebook announcement. You're like, I'm going to produce every week. You can do a bunch of different formats and a bunch of different genres week by week. How does that actually go? I think I got pretty lucky here. Three weeks in, we had a video. I'm not going to say it went viral. The third video I made got like picked up by multiple websites and it got like 40,000 views. Wow. And to put this in perspective, the video was called Film Students Getting Punched. 
And it was kind of this montage of various, like, really insufferable, pretentious film students. So I'm filling my eye right now. Saying various quotes. And uh, I'm going to loop that for about 20 minutes. That were mostly direct quotes from people I'd studied film with, whether uh, at Oberlin or in Prague. Just like people that had annoyed me, I'd like written down all like the dumb, pretentious bullshit they'd said. And my friend Chloe played this girl who just like has like like leather driving gloves and like sunglasses on, just going around, just like punching all of them in the face. Excuse me. Film it. It's just this this sequence of some film students saying some like really insufferable thing and then they get punched in the face. And that was it. That video, suddenly like I, I wake up one morning and and my sister like rushes into my room and goes like, Patrick, your video is on the Huffington Post, which in 2011 was an exciting thing. It was it was huge. Before that, the most people that ever had ever seen anything I'd ever made were like a few hundred, maybe like in my hometown or like a college. I, I remember like all my friends and I would be like you know gathered at uh at like our favorite coffee shop like uh in in our hometown and we're like looking through the comments section like amazed like oh my god there's like strangers like. T talking about us and uh and also saying mean things about us but whatever because people are watching this and like that this was confirmation that like oh this can work but the way i was looking at youtube back then was i was not ever looking to like build the channel into my main job the goal was to was to make videos that would you know, hopefully get attention and then get hired to to make other stuff. The channel was called Patrick H. Willems. And yet I was almost never in the videos. And each one was some kind of like little like short film that we're all like totally disconnected from each other. It was exciting to just be playing around and experimenting and trying different things. Yeah, and having people actually validate that by watching it. Right. And, and then one thing I realized was, oh, if I make videos that are like you know, connected to, like, pop culture stuff or, like, you know, things that are topical, those might get more views. And so, like, I made this one video that was, uh, at the time in 2011, DC Comics was publishing this giant, like, reboot of, like, their entire line. It was, like, this huge seismic event in the comic book industry. And, and I, I made a, a video that was like kind of making fun of it. And then like a couple days later, the VP of marketing for DC Comics calls me on the phone and uh, wants to talk to me about like making videos for them. And suddenly I'm, I'm just like, oh my God, it, it's all working. It's all happening. And I, I go to my friends. I'm like, guys, I, th I think this is going to happen. And this is going to be our, our new job. We got to move to New York City and uh, and like really pursue this. Anyway, skip ahead a little bit. The DC thing totally fell apart. <laughs> and so I had a meeting at their New York offices, uh, which was very exciting. And uh, and then they stopped returning my emails. I think it was mostly a thing where I don't think that the guy was especially serious about it. I think he just like saw this video and saw it getting some traction and was just like, oh, this could be fun. I'll talk to the guy. And then just like kept kind of forgetting about me. And then I ran into him at Comic-Con a few years later and I was like, hey, how's it going? And then <laughs> and then he, he made it clear that there was a weird kind of miscommunication where he apparently had thought that I had taken some other job and wasn't interested, uh, which was weird. Um, but anyway, th that was still like, even though that didn't work out, that was still a moment where it immediately told me like, okay, 
I, I, I've got like major corporations that I would kill to work with calling me up like this could turn into something. And then, you know, I got uh, uh, two of my close friends that I like would work with on the videos. And then at the end of 2011, we moved down to New York City. The 40,000 views on his video, the opinionated YouTube comment section below, and the call from DC Comics affirmed Patrick's efforts. His confidence grew as he remembered that videos weren't made for impressing highbrow critics. They were supposed to be entertaining and witty, wild and experimental, with the power to whisk you out of your seat and into a new reality. Or at least just give you a fresh perspective or something to laugh at. Patrick's first YouTube hit followed this principle. Maybe it wasn't Oscar-worthy or a box office masterpiece, but it was experimental. They allowed Patrick to test what he enjoyed and what his audience would enjoy too. With his YouTube career at last kicking off, Patrick set his eyes on the Big Apple. So you're producing like weekly videos basically and trying out a bunch of different styles. You're getting calls from DC and these big companies. Lead me up to where things go to 2015. Yeah, so over over the next uh, like three, four years, we'd make these videos regularly. The channel mostly made no money. My day job was the freelance video work. We'd be making these videos and every so often there would be one that would take off and, and get some attention online. I remember there was one video we made where like, I believe it was MasterCard wanted to like base like some sort of like weird marketing campaign around it. That didn't end up happening, but every so often there'd be, there'd be a little thing like that that would tell me like, okay, one of these is really gonna work. And then in 2014, I'd had this idea after, for a while, the most successful video on the channel was one where I kind of like reimagined the movie Point Break when they announced they were gonna make a remake of it. And I kind of imagined what the remake might look like if made by different directors. That video like, like blew up. And that's where I suddenly I, I was like, oh wow, imitating the styles of different filmmakers is like, I think I'm like okay at, and I think that I really enjoy. What could I do with that? And then I kind of realized like, we could turn this into a series. The video idea was called, what if Wes Anderson directed X-Men? And I was like, I'm pretty sure if we do this right, it's gonna do well. I'm, I'm like, I think this concept really works. And I put more time and money into that one than I usually did. The videos usually cost like nothing. And then, yeah, we dropped the video March 3rd, 2015, and it blew up. It was really big. And then the big thing was suddenly, because that video did so well, I was having all these meetings with like, TV producers and production companies, all these people who like wanted to work with me. And immediately I was just like, it's happening. This is it. This is the thing that I've been like working for for like the past several years. Make a video that like the right people see and it's gonna lead to, to like opportunities to do cool stuff with real budgets elsewhere. I was also very convinced that these new opportunities were all gonna work. And so we, we were like developing some like pitches for like TV shows. The one that I was really excited about, I developed this series with Vanity Fair and it was going to be like a continuation of the what if blank directed blank premise. And they wanted to do a thing where I would make like one video a month, but they would be tied to big new movies. And then suddenly the 
the like higher up like executive producers there got cold feet and they were like, eh, can you do something else that's like, you know, more of a sure thing? And so we developed one that was more of a sure thing. And they paid me to write the script. And then I just spent months waiting for them to like give us a green light. I think it was like October 2015. They they just like their budgets got changed around. So they, they like gave me back the rights to it. And then that was the end. And then a key thing is also right around here, as like the last of the opportunities that had come along dried up. And then also my freelance work had like kind of cooled off. Like uh like my my regular clients had like had to like put a freeze on like their video operations. And I just like I was like totally broke, just out of money, and uh and I got shingles. Oh, It was just brought on by the stress of, like, so many times, like, waking up uh, in the morning and looking at my phone and seeing that I have an overdraft fee because I have negative money in my bank account. I had my best idea for a YouTube video ever, and it's done, and all of the opportunities that came from that have dried up and gone away. I am broke, and I have shingles, and I'm back at square one pretty much. Despite losing what could have potentially been the biggest deal yet, Patrick wasn't exactly back at square one. He was in New York with more than 10,000 followers on his channel, and he just created his biggest YouTube hit. Like Patrick, a lot of us probably struggle to recognize our own progress sometimes. It can be hard to see how far we've come in the moment until we zoom out. Patrick was caught up in this single frame from his career and was disappointed with what he saw. He continuously asked himself, is it happening? Was this the video that would break him into Hollywood? But the fascinating thing is that Patrick was doing something much more impressive. Even without college resources or fancy film equipment, he was still getting noticed. While we can't control outcomes in the grand scheme of things, we can control our actions, such as the amount of hours we spend working towards a goal or how frequently we network with others. When faced with hardship, it's important to remember that success doesn't begin with success. It begins with trying. With this lesson in mind, Patrick pointed his camera towards the future. Over the next year, I still, I kept making videos, but I knew that I didn't have any ideas that were gonna be as big as the Wes Anderson X-Men. Like, I had some fun ideas and some videos that did, like, mildly okay, but, like, channel wasn't making money, nothing, nothing that was gonna go, like, really viral skip ahead to like fall 2016 and I'm just kind of <laughs> I decided I, I should take a couple months off from from YouTube and just maybe kind of reevaluate this and see if I, maybe I need to change my approach or just like rethink my career choices because I don't know if this is gonna turn into anything and so how did you reevaluate that and what did you end up doing the way I'd been approaching the videos for you know, the past, like, five, six years, was that the videos, like, they, they were initially weekly back in 2011. For the past several years, the videos might come out, like, once a month. There was no consistent schedule. The videos were all wildly different from one another. We were not building any kind of audience. We're not building any kind of momentum. And so I took a couple months off from YouTube and just watched other stuff on YouTube. And during this period, I, I just, I started regularly watching Casey Neistat's daily vlogs. 
which I hadn't really paid attention to before, but I kind of got really into. And it was interesting looking at them, because I was like, okay, these videos individually, there's nothing to, like, set, like, this day's video apart from, like, other ones. Th this one is not, like, a big special one with its own hook. It's just, like, a steady stream of videos rather than, like, these individual big things. And so I was like, maybe, like, I can't make daily videos, obviously, and, uh, you know, I no one wants me to do a daily vlog. But, like, I was like, what if I kind of changed my approach to this a little bit and tried to focus on having a consistent schedule, which we haven't had in, like, five years, and actually go back to the original idea and have a video out every Wednesday so that the audience can count on that and we could actually try to build momentum, that thing that we have not had. My plan was, look, I will try this for a few months, and then if that doesn't work out at all, it might just be time to give up on YouTube and try some other career path. And so I realized, I was like, okay, we've been making these like little narrative short films. I can't make one of those every week. Those involve like a big cast, like, you know, like special effects, like all of these complicated things. I can't do that every single week. So I try some different types of videos as well. And one thing was, I was like, look, I spend so much time thinking about movies. I'm obsessed with movies. I have a degree in cinema studies. Maybe I'll try something where I just, you know, I'll like try making a video essay because those are like yeah. a big thing on YouTube now. And like, I spent years writing essays. I can do that. You know what you're doing um, there. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's like an easy way to just like fill the spot for that week. When we think about video content nowadays, our minds gravitate towards the brisk collage of rapid clips and sound bites that make up the majority of TikTok, Instagram reels, and YouTube shorts. Contrast that with a sophisticated video essay averaging 15 to 30 minutes, and you can wonder how they can compete. But the appeal of these videos lies in the fact that they don't just explain what, but also why giving viewers more substance to chew on than, say, a 50-second short. While it feels as if video essays were a 180 from the comedy sketches of Patrick's early YouTube career, it was actually the most natural direction for him to take. He'd spent years entertaining audiences with his knowledge of film, so why not start educating them as well? And considering the YouTube landscape of 2016-2017, it wasn't a bad idea either. Videos by essayists like nerd writer Lindsay Ellis and pop culture detective were dissecting fan favorite films, and those videos were attracting millions of views. It was obvious that appetite for film analysis existed, but the question remained, could Patrick find a way to feed this appetite, or would he have to switch gears once again? So we started this in, uh, it was like end of October 2016, and then once again, just like 2011, the third video in. That was the one that just hit. The third video was the the first video essay I ever made that I was convinced no one was going to watch. Like, when I said that I'm always bad at predicting what videos will or won't be hits, yeah, uh, this that's very true. What was the video? For years, I had been complaining to my friends. They were so sick of hearing about it. I would complain to them about the dull, samey aesthetic and color grading of Marvel Studios movies. They're like, <laughs> they're comic book things. They should like have like strong visual styles. And, and so I was like, okay, I released the video and I made a point of trying to give it like a, a slightly more clickbaity, catchy title. So I called it, why do Marvel's movies look kind of ugly? 
Anyway, yeah, it, it was a big hit. It, like, blew up on, on Reddit and got, like, a couple million views. Wow. Still still behind the Wes Anderson X-Men. But the, the very important thing was that suddenly the subscriber count started growing rapidly. After five and a half years, this is November 2016, I only had 18,000 subscribers. And then, like, I believe it was two weeks after that, we were at 40,000. So you, like, doubled instantly. And with this, at the end of the video, I kind of, like, in my little outro, I kind of casually was like, yeah, I don't know if you guys want to see more video essays. Oh, let me know. And then the comment section blew up, and it's like, more, do, yes, do more of these. At first, it started out where I would do one video essay a month, and then it became very clear that the video essays were doing well and getting views, like real views. Like, the channel suddenly started making money, which it never had before. Suddenly, the, the, for the first time, like, brands reach out to, like, sponsor wow. videos, and as anyone who does YouTube can tell you, that is, you know, where, like, the actual money is and, like, where the real income comes from. Then it was around there, like summer 2017, and the channel is still growing pretty rapidly, where it became my like main source of income. And then spring 2018 was when I did my last freelance gigs. And what were your brand deals at that point? Like, what was your first brand deal in terms of like how much they were paying you? My very first one was Skillshare which, weirdly enough, has just become one of my, like, regular ones over the years. Like, initially, they came right to me. Um, since 2018, I've had an agency that, like, negotiates all of the brand deals and stuff like that. But yeah, Skillshare has been, like, one of the main sponsors for years. But, like, you know, early on, it was, like, the regular ones. There was, like, did, like, a, a I don't know, like, three-video deal with Squarespace. And how much was Squarespace paying? Because I remember, like... Binging with Babish also, his first deal was with Squarespace, and they paid him something like tens of thousands of dollars or something like that, or something ridiculous. But do you remember how much yours was? Well, I mean, my channel has never been remotely as, as big as his, and so it was definitely not around there. I think the Squarespace one was like, was it something like, it might have been like 5000 per video. That's huge, like a $15,000 deal? Yeah, and I, I, I can that's tell you, huge. it's huge, and that's also, considering the size of my channel, that's not average for channels of that size. That's really high. It seemed like what they were doing was, they were like, we'll like pay really well for like the first group, and then we'll see how they do, and then we'll adjust for like future ones. I don't think they ever actually came back and worked with me again, I think it was just that initial group. I'm still only making about what I was making during the freelance periods, but also, like, there seems to be more momentum, so I was, like, really actively pursuing it. And the thing with the freelance work was that it, it was just taking time away. But it wasn't as fun, I imagine. Definitely not as fun. The path to success is rarely linear. As with any exciting film, life is full of twists and turns, surprise reveals and unexpected losses. The questions we ask when we visit a movie theater are often the same ones we ask when we go through our day-to-day. For example, how does someone get out of this mess? Or what's happening next? They're full of suspense, uncertainty, and risk, yet totally legitimate. Throughout his tumultuous career, Patrick has suffered his share of plot twists, from getting rejected by grad schools to getting dropped by Vanity Fair. In the moment, they felt crushing, but when considered as a whole, 
it's clear they were just some important story beats in Patrick's journey. Had he not got rejected from grad school, he might never have looked into YouTube. Had he gotten the green light from Vanity Fair, he might have never got around to nourishing his own channel. Not all plot twists turn out for the worse, nor does failure mean the end of the overall story. And as the adage goes, when one act closes, the next act opens. Now that the channel's in a good place, what are some of the projects that you're most excited about and just like your your career in general? It's funny. So I had never planned to have YouTube be my full-time job. YouTube was always designed to be like a stepping stone to other filmmaking work. And then over the years, I, I mostly learned like, you know, don't, don't pass up an opportunity when it comes along. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Any, any of those sayings. Basically, when this thing suddenly seemed like, oh, it's actually working out and there's like a viable career here, let's see if we can turn it into something. And it did. It, uh, you know, I'm uh, obviously like the goal is still like make movies, like do like narrative filmmaking work. Um, so I'm, I'm still not exactly where I, I want to be, but I'm having a good time what I'm doing now is also creatively fulfilling. It's uh, like like video essays and uh, are pretty enjoyable. And a big turning point I think for the channel was once suddenly once that first video essay like popped and you know and became a hit. And then I realized, oh, I've got to do more of these. I spent the first year, like over 2017, pretty much making video essays in the style that most people use, like. You know, movie clips over a voiceover with a with like not a lot of personality, just bare bones, like analytical essay. And I realized that I got really bored making videos in that style. And so at the start of 2018, I decided to change my approach to the essays and kind of approach each essay as like as its own short film and figure out like okay how can we like create a story to this that will like take us into the topic and like motivate why we're discussing it how can we you know have the visual style uh, and presentation of the video like reflect the movies that we're talking about we're using a visual medium why not take advantage of that and do as much with it as we can um and just just make stuff that like that, it, that does feel like it's like my personality and voice and style and the channel's my name. I feel like the video should like represent. You want it to be representative of you. Exactly. It, it may have made the videos a little bit less accessible to like new viewers, but it did really lock in the, uh, the people who were watching it because this channel is the only place doing it exactly like this. Like if you like it, you really like it. And then the funny thing was, so I'm still working with a lot of the same people I was working with in like 2005, but we decided to try this weird project where I noticed that people were putting all of my videos on IMDb uh, and they were logging them all on IMDb as a TV show called Patrick Willem's Video Essays and they were marking each year as a season. So at the end of 2019, which they were calling like, I don't know, like season four or something, I was like, okay, guys, what if, what if we treat the next year like a full season of television and have a continuous like narrative storyline run through the whole year? Like it's a, like it's a real season, like just as like a, a fun experiment. 
committed to it. Uh, and even though there was like a pandemic and we had to like change aspects of the way we were working and like prolong the storyline like past the end of 2020, the audience like genuinely got really into it. Like to the point where this is where it's going to sound very weird for anyone who's not familiar with my work. Um, much of this, uh, the season long storyline involves um, uh, a coconut with googly eyes. Uh, uh, who is a major player in this. And uh, the Coconut with Googly Eyes became such a hit that we ended up producing plush toys of it, uh, which have sold extremely well. We have a lot of merchandise tied to this coconut. Almost a year ago, last May 2021, we had a video end. It ended with the shocking death of one of our major supporting cast members. He was murdered by the coconut. If this is the best hero this universe can offer, this will be the easiest one yet. Take your shot. If you think you're... Best. Two out of three. I can't believe I had to take the f***ing G-Train for this. And, uh, and, and and as it fades to black, it says, to be concluded. And then I come on the screen and say, hey, so we're, we're making the season finale now. The plan was always to end this whole thing, uh, this weird, you know, storytelling hybrid essay experiment with an original short film. And so we're going to go make that now. And we had gotten a budget to produce this thing. Uh, we like jumped right into working on it. And to make a long story short, because this is the last year of my life, um, it ballooned into a feature-length movie. Somehow, what began with me making this overly ambitious like feature film in high school fell into this like weird YouTube experiment, and then in the video essay somehow turned into making a feature film with, like, the same people that I was making it with in high school. Patrick is back where it all started, with feature-length movies, problem-solving on the ground, and wacky storytelling that is as much a reflection of his personality as his interests. This time, not as a directionalist college grad, but as a professional with technical expertise and a budget. The way Patrick cobbled together this season-long multi-episode project reminds me of the stop-motion videos he used to make as a kid. Choppy and maybe a bit rough around the edges in the individual segments, but ultimately coming together to tell a beautiful, fluid narrative. In many ways, his career had followed the same trajectory. There were moments where the plot felt like it had reached a dead end or the transition from one scene of life to another was a little shaky, but that didn't detract from the quality of Patrick's overall narrative. In fact, these moments of uncertainty and suspense enhanced it. Often, the movies most worth watching are those with the most challenge. And in many ways, the same can be said for the paths we pursue. Looking back at this life story, there are a couple points where you said like you were at your lowest, right? Where it didn't seem like a filmmaking career was going to be possible. Um, and looking back at those moments, 
what advice do you think you would have given to your younger self to maybe take advantage of some of the momentum that you got early on or take advantage of some of the opportunities that you got or just create more opportunities in general? What, what advice do you think you'd give to yourself? I don't know if I've totally gotten over it, but especially like back in 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 college and in the early days of, of YouTube, I had this this sort of like mentality about refusing to do the obvious like path to success. I would I would tell myself like, hey, stop being like a contrarian all the time and you know, like if something is working out, like actively pursue that. If people like a thing that you're doing, maybe do more of it. There are like it it took a long time until like the video essays that I kind of managed to find a way to be like, okay, I can I can do the thing that like that that gets the numbers, that gets the views that people want to see, but I can do it on my terms. Um, I, I don't have to insist on doing literally everything by my terms and turn my nose up at whatever you know seems like like an easier uh, or, or more conventional path to success. It is, it's important to be like constantly working on something like, you know, uh, like constantly trying to like move forward. It's not like you have to be like working 12 hours a day on like videos every single day, but never assume that anything is going to work out. If anything, assume that they won't work out uh, so that you don't have to stress too much about them. Um, and just, and, and don't, you know, don't use that as an excuse to, to slack off. It's, it's, it's great to make stuff that you're proud of and feels unique and that you're excited about. And it's also great to uh, make a living. And so <laughs> it's a matter of trying to get these, th these two things to work together. Patrick's advice to his younger self comes in three acts. One, you don't have to go against the grain to keep moving forward. Two, never assume immediate success. And three, find the balance between your passion and your career. While he might not be able to go back and tell himself these things, I believe that these three lessons are something that we can learn from. Patrick's story doesn't just follow an established script, each scene seamlessly flowing into the next. In fact, it kind of does the opposite. He's had to adjust his role through the years from being the guy who makes movies in his hometown to a directionalist college grad slash retail clerk to now a full-time video essayist and film producer. Despite working for so long in his dream of becoming a filmmaker, he hasn't lost the love for experimentation that colored his Lego movies 20 years ago, and now that colors video essays. Success found Patrick because he embraced what he loved and shared it with the world. Just as the process of filming is kicked off with the three small words, ready, set, action, so is an epic journey kicked off by a few small steps. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox, Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley. And Luis Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from 
Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibada Thrive, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Kandaza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.